Well, Revelation chapter 1, we're just going to dive in here. But let me just say, uh, as we study this book, um, that I I always feel um, inadequate to preach and proclaim God's Word. Uh, But I have felt especially inadequate to lead and study through this book. And uh, for many reasons, and it's probably the reasons why I've been reluctant to do so over the 17 years of ministry that God has given me to preach. Never preach through the book of Revelation. Um, But I'll tell you, as I was studying this week, just this first chapter, and having read the book as a whole several times in preparation, but then really diving deep on this first chapter, um, we're just going to scratch the surface of what this book is all about this morning. As I was studying this first chapter, um, it's what I would probably call uh, the Grand Canyon of Scripture because it is remarkably deep and around every corner is greater glory. It's like standing beneath the trapdoor of a grain bin and John just pulls the lever and you're overwhelmed with the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ. I didn't get one chapter into Revelation. And uh, I was just stopping and saying, Lord, it's too much. This is too high. This is too wonderful. I cannot adequately express it. And so just know this as we start. This is a difficult book, but it really just makes plain Jesus Christ to us. So as we study this, this has been my prayer. As we begin this study, this is my prayer. That our study of Revelation, as a result of having studied this book, we would deepen in our commitment to Christ and deepen our love towards him. If we don't do that, we've missed the point. So let's just read, let's read these first eight verses. We're going to dive in, we'll pray, and then we'll try to work our way through. Look with me, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and he made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, we pray this morning for this brief amount of time that with all that many of us have going on today, this being Father's Day weekend. I pray for just this brief amount of time you'd help us to put aside anything that would distract us from hearing your voice and your word. 
pray this morning we would fix our eyes on Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we plead with you. We love you and we ask you to open our eyes to the truth of God's holy word. And we pray, even as this text reminds us, that we wouldn't just read these words, but we would hear them. They would penetrate our hearts and we would heed your word that we might know its blessing. So Lord, it's my prayer that when we leave here just a little bit later, we leave here changed. Because we met with God. We heard his voice and his word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the very beginning, we find out what this book is all about. We find the intention. We find the purpose. It says here, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right there, you find the purpose of this book. Revelation is intended to reveal Christ to us. So often, there's kind of two responses to the book of Revelation. There are those folks who are kind of afraid of Revelation. They read its stories, and, and uh, they, they see these pictures and these things that they can't quite understand, and it's overwhelming, and they can't figure it out, and it kind of frights them, frightens them, so they ignore it, and they put it away, and they don't ever read it, and they don't ever study it. And on the opposite end of the, the spectrum are those who are obsessed with the book of Revelation. And they agonize over every detail of it, trying to figure out all the details and events like some kind of puzzle or Rubik's Cube so that they can determine all the specific dates and the players of the end times of human history. But what we learn very quickly is that this book is not intended to be a fairy tale that frightens you, and it's not a puzzle to be deciphered. It's about a Savior that we worship. We study this book, our response should be the same as John that we'll see next week in verse 17. As we study this, we're intended to fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him. As I said earlier, if our study of of Revelation doesn't lead us to fall at the feet of Jesus and worship him, we've missed the whole point. This book makes Christ clear to us. And we see right away in these first two verses that this book comes with divine authority. We find out that the Father dictates this revelation to the Son who communicates it by means of an angel to John and finally to us. So you've got Father, Son, Angel, John, Lenexa Baptist Church. It gets to us. But the source of this fountain of revelation is heaven. That this book is divine. This book is God-breathed. It's the word of God, which is the primary reason why we study it. I've had a lot of people say, Pastor, we're so grateful that you're leading us to study the book of Revelation. I've had other people saying, Pastor, what in the world are you doing? (laughs) It's a dangerous thing. You know why we study this book? We study it primarily because it's the word of God. And all of God's word is profitable. And we don't back down even from the difficult stuff. It's got divine authority. And then we see the blessing. Blessed is he who reads and hears and heeds the words of the prophecy. 
We're intended to read this, but not just read it, but to hear it, to let it saturate our lives. And then to heed its words, meaning that we're intended to obey it. And there's a blessing that comes with that. In fact, this is the only book that comes with a command to read it. And oftentimes it's the one book we don't read. But really that this idea of blessed is he who reads these words and hears the words of the prophecy and heeds them. It's the blessing that's attached to all of God's word. That there's a blessing that comes and you know I would not miss ever a moment in God's word to encourage you to read the Bible. There is a blessing, not just with revelation, but with all of God's word. It's the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 1 when he says, Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates both day and night, for he'll become like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. I have not met one person who doesn't want to be that tree. We all want to know the prosperity of of the goodness of God and we want to know success in this world as a tree that's firmly planted. But remember, that's predicated on an individual who loves God's word. Not just loves it, but studies it and reads it and adheres their life to it. It's the essence of Psalm 19 when it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Listen, you can be a high school dropout and have remarkable and incredible wisdom in as much as you know this book. That's the goodness of this book. I mean, you can have more degrees than a thermometer and have no wisdom, and we know people like that. And you can have no real education. But if you know this book, you become incredibly wise. Law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They're righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold and sweeter also than the honey and the dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned and keeping them there's great reward. Who can discern his errors equipment? You know what David is saying there? He's saying, I found out that peace and joy and success in my life comes from living according to this book. Can I just tell you this morning, I wouldn't advise this, but even if you do not believe in Christ, I truly believe with all my heart if you would live your life according to this book, it really is the best way to live. You live your life according to this book, I guarantee you'll become a better husband, you'll become a better wife, you'll become a better father, you'll become a better employee, and guess what? You should become the best citizen this nation has if you live by this book. So we're reminded here, blessing comes with revelation, but don't forget there's a blessing that comes with delighting in all of God's word and reading it and hearing it and heeding it. But then we see very quickly the greeting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. John, this is the author. It's the last apostle. He's writing to exile from the island of Patmos. And why is he there? Because he was a guy who would not back down. We're going to find that out about John as we go through this. He would not back down. He's preaching the gospel in the midst of a wicked world, facing persecution. They just exile him, kick him out. But he's the last credible witness. 
John writes and he completes the canon of Scripture. If we don't have Revelation, there's so many loose ends of the Bible that are they're not, they're not brought to their conclusion. I mean, we just got in studying Genesis and all the promises of God to Abraham. If you don't have a revelation, then you're left wondering where are the promises fulfilled. You remember the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, that he, one man, will crush your head and you'll bruise him on the heel. God says, I'm going to send somebody. He's going to make, some, make everything right. And you're kind of left wondering, well, he died, but when is he going to make everything right? book of Revelation tells you. This book's critical. And, and John is the last apostle, the last credible witness, and it closes our canon of Scripture. And this is so important because it means that nobody can come walking out of the wilderness and say, hey, I've got another book of the Bible. No, this is it. This completes God's revelation. What's interesting, this is John, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John, wrote the letters of John. But John, you remember, he had a brother, the sons of Zebedee. His brother was James. What's interesting about this, you'll remember, James and John, they got mama involved. Do you remember that? Because they wanted what? They wanted to sit. Jesus, can we sit at the, your right and your left in the kingdom? And Jesus said, that's not for me to give. And then he asked them, are you able to drink the cup? And they say, sure. They don't even know what they're, know what they're agreeing to. But what's interesting about that, you know the first apostle to be martyred? James. And the last apostle to be martyred? John. Here he is, the last credible witness. The author of this book that completes the canon of scripture. And it's written to who? Who's the audience? The seven churches. It's a good reminder, this is a letter. There were probably more churches, certainly there were more churches than these seven. These letters were intended to be circular. We'll study this more as we move forward. These are probably, these cities represent probably the great postal districts of Asia Minor. But it's a good reminder, this is a letter written specifically to these churches. And whenever you're studying scripture, a good biblical principle when you're studying the word of God is always start with the people to whom it was first written. What was the intended meaning for the original hearers? And in this context, the letter is addressed to seven churches and seven churches that were experiencing horrific persecution under guys like Domitian and, and Nero. They had found Christ. They had found joy and new life in Christ and they almost simultaneously were experiencing the venom of secular culture just poured out on them in all kinds of horrific ways. And they were wondering, where is God? Where is this king of glory? Who's in control of this mad and crazy world in which we're living? And it's in that context, God, God comes to John and to those churches and to those believers and ultimately to us so that in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their confusion, in the midst of a chaotic world, that they might catch a glimpse of the King of glory and the Lord of lords, that he has not abdicated his authority, that he is in total control. And when you understand that context, you realize that this is not some kind of intellectual puzzle sent to a relaxed and comfortable church that has a whole bunch of time on its hands. No, it's sent to a persecuted church that's in desperate need of making sense of what they're experiencing and how they reconcile their current struggles with their newfound faith and identity in Christ. Christ. 
So please remember as we study this book, it is not written to gratify the curiosity of men. It's not a book of riddles. It draws back the curtain on Christ. It reveals Christ and his kingdom. And it shows us that there's a whole lot more going on in this world than what we can simply see with our eyes. And that Christ is in control. And guess what he's doing? He's building his church. And one day he will come back. So we see the author. We see the audience. And then we see the greeting, the latter portion of verse 4, grace and peace to you. And that should remind you of the letters of Paul. Typical greeting of Paul, grace and peace to you. We don't have time to spend a whole lot of time here, but remember, it's always in that order. Grace and then peace. You cannot know peace with God until you first experience the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people out there, you ask them, are you going to heaven? Yes. Why are you going to heaven? They will give you the moral resume of all the things they've done. And you know what they're saying? They're saying it's peace first and then grace. That I've somehow earned peace with God. I've become friends with this one who was my enemy because of my sin. And because of my moral goodness, I've now become good in his sight. And now I get the grace of heaven. That is not biblical. (laughs) You and I are sinners. We're unclean. There's no worship that we can offer to God that is worthy of the worship that he he demands because he is God and he's holy and we're sinners and our only hope is the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But having known the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then you and I who are enemies now become friends with God through faith in Christ and we know his peace. What a powerful picture. But grace and peace from who? And then he shows us the Trinity. In verse 4, Moving on, grace and peace from him who is and was and is to come. This is God the Father, that God is eternal. That he had a plan from eternity. He's saving out a people for himself today. And one day he's going to come back to finish what he started. The God who is, who was, and is to come. This is a reference to Yahweh. You remember when he revealed himself to Moses? I'm Yahweh, the great I am. That this is not a God who learns. Not a God who learns new things. This is not a God who forgets. It's not a God who grows. He is eternally and immutably perfect. He's the God who is and was and is to come. And then we see in the latter portion of verse 4, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, my translation, and I get asked a lot just so you know, I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Uh, And not because I think it's the greatest translation out there, because it's the one I've been using the longest, and I don't want to change. I like my translation. So anyway, uh, some people ask, uh, just so you know, this is a New American Standard Translation, but in my translation, that spirit is in the capital, uh, is a capital S, meaning that this is referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we also know that the Holy Spirit of God is a sevenfold Spirit of God. In fact, in the holy place, there was that lampstand with the seven branches lit with oil, always lit before the Lord. And it was symbolic of the presence of God, the Spirit of God in that place. If you want a cross-reference for this, you can go look at Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2, and it talks about the Nazir, the the shoot out of the stem of, of Jesse. It's referring to the Messiah there in Isaiah 11. 
And it says that he will have uh, the spirit of the Lord. He'll have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. The sevenfold spirit of God. We're talking about the Holy Spirit. And then you see in verse 5, and from who? And from Jesus Christ. So to pull this together, you've got God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Father, Spirit, Son. Now, even as I say that, it sounds awkward, doesn't it? Because typically we would say what? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The question is, why is the order changed here? Why would he change the order? I'll tell you what I believe. I believe he changed the order because as he will see in the rest of this book, he's always going to make much of Jesus. He says Father, Spirit, and Son because he wants to stop right here. And what you're going to see is flowing out of this is a doxology of praise of the worthiness of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of all of our lives. He's worthy of all of our worship. He's worthy of all of our praise. And the question is, why is he worthy? Well, we find out right here in this doxology of praise moving forward to the end of these eight verses. Right here, in fact, the first, why is he worthy of praise? As we've just seen, he's God. Jesus is worthy of our praise because he's God. <laughs> Listen to this way. Jesus is not like God. He's not close to God. He is God. He spoke this world into existence. He's not part of creation. He's creator. He's not an angel. He's the creator of the angels. He's not merely a prophet. He's not just a good teacher or a good communicator. He's God. So listen, it doesn't matter how much you respect Jesus. It doesn't matter how much you adore Jesus. It doesn't even matter how much you worship Jesus. If you make Jesus anything less than God, it's blasphemy. End of story. So don't let anybody come knocking on your door and try to convince you that Jesus is anything less than God. You know why he's worthy of our worship? Because he's God. But he goes on. He's worthy of our worship because in verse 5, he's the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness. The faithful. He's the beloved son of God. Remember at his baptism, this is my Beloved son. Remember the transfiguration? This is my beloved son. He's the beloved son because he's faithful. He's perfectly obedient to the father. He's the faithful witness because he shows us who God is. Do you remember what Paul said in Colossians? He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things have been created in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, and in him all things hold together. The author of Hebrews says that he is the radiance of his glory, meaning he's the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Meaning, you want to know who God is? Just look to Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's the faithful witness. He shows us who God is. 
But then we see he's worthy of worship, not just because he's God, not just because he's the faithful witness, but in verse five, he's worthy of worship because he's the firstborn from the dead. Last time I checked, death is batting a thousand. Death never misses, except one. Now, there'll be people who say, what about Lazarus? Listen, first of all, you talk about a bad deal. He dies. Goes to heaven. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And then gets called back. I mean, he missed the hardest part of the whole deal. You know, I, I say it this way. Everybody wants to be with Jesus. It's the dying part we don't like, right? <laughs> it's the dying part that's the scary part. And in fact, recently I've had opportunity to talk to a couple of people who were near death. And I just love to, act, when I have a good enough relationship, obviously this isn't always appropriate with people you don't know well. But when they're near death, to ask them, a true believer in Jesus Christ, what are you feeling? And you know, these two individuals that I heard from recently, both of them, they said, I'm not really afraid, I'm just curious. And that's a good way of looking at it. Because there's a lot of that process we just don't know. But you know what we do know? That if we truly know Jesus, we will be raised. Why? Because he was raised. He conquered the grave. He's the only individual who lived a physical life here on earth died a real physical death, was placed in a tomb, and we cannot find his body because he's raised and he ascended to the Father and he's seated at the right hand of God. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's our hero. In fact, you know what's interesting about that? You and I, we die in faith, trusting in somebody who died in our place. We trust in a Savior. Jesus, when he died, he had nobody to trust in. But the beautiful part about it is he didn't need anybody to trust him because he's with God. He's not accepted on the basis of faith. He's accepted on the basis of his works and he's perfect and he's God and he defeated the grave and now he's a firstborn from the dead and we know that we'll be raised because he was raised. Folks, we got a hero, amen? We got a savior, He's worthy of worship because he's God. He's worthy of worship because he's the final prophet. He's the faithful witness. He's worthy of worship because he's the firstborn from the dead. But it goes on. Not only this, but he's worthy of worship. In verse five, continues on, because he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. There's no one higher than Jesus. It doesn't matter how high a person goes. It doesn't matter how powerful they are or how powerful they think they are. They're always below Jesus. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the king of all. He's our king right now. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, just listen to me this morning. It doesn't matter what you think about Jesus. It doesn't change the fact that he is God and he's king. Uh, you remember in Psalm 2, 
Why are the nations in uproar and the people devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Does that not sound like our world today? We don't want God. We don't want Jesus. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. We want to be the king of our own lives. And what is the response of God? He who sits in the heavens does what? Laughs. He says, that's funny. And then it says he'll speak to them in his anger and he'll terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king. Doesn't matter what you think. I've already declared it. He's king. He's Lord of all the earth. So here he is. He's worthy. He's God. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. And he's the ruler of all the earth. But you know the one point that got me? If you keep reading, look at verse 5, the end of verse 5. Ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us. This is the point that stopped me in my tracks. He's God. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He conquered the grave. He's the ruler of all the earth. But the best part is that he loves me. The best part is that he loves you. Now, I have some folks in my life that love me. I got a dog <laughs> named Gunner. Good lab. And he loves me because I feed him. And, uh, and I give him treats from the table sometimes, which I'm not supposed to do. And so he sits right by me all the time. And I appreciate that. But that's, that's not as good. That's not as good as my boys. My boys love me. Because I'm their dad. And, and I feed them too. Uh, they get to eat. You know what's good about that? My boys have seen me. They've seen me with all my failures, all my goof-ups, and they love me, and I appreciate that. You know what's better than that? My wife, she loves me. Somehow, for an unknown reason to me, she chose me. And she's seen me with all my warts and my failures. And she loves me. And oh, I appreciate that. But you know what's better than that? Jesus loves me. He's God. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the ruler over all the earth. And he loves me. He loves you. And the question is, how do we know he loves us? Well, it continues on. Because he released us from our sins by his blood. How do I know? How do I know that I know that Jesus loves me? You know how I know? The cross. Where he died for me. I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes about how God, how in the world could God love a wretched sinner like me? I think about his holiness. I think about how he's set apart. I think about how nobody can look upon God and live. 
And then I think of the depth of my own sin, and I wonder how in the world could God love me? And then I remember the cross. I remember that his blood, the blood of Christ, allowed the justice of God to reach down and to declare me righteous, and his blood delivered me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. You know, it's nearly impossible to look at the cross and say, Jesus, you don't really love me. I just tell you, if you're here this morning, you're struggling with how Jesus could love you, look to the cross. Because quite frankly, there's nothing else he can do. That's as far as he can go in the demonstration of his love. There's no more questions to be asked. The cross of Jesus Christ settles the question as to whether or not God loves you. At that point, it's finished, it's done. He loves you. But it gets even better in verse six, and he made us to be a kingdom priest to his God and Father. Not only does Christ love you, he makes you a part of his kingdom. He's our God, we're his people. We bend the knee to Christ. And unlike the kings of the world and the politicians of the world, he's perfect. And there's no greater goodness than bending to the knee to this perfect king who loves you. And so we bend the knee to Christ and we bend the knee to no one else. Doesn't matter who they are. We only bend the knee to Christ. It's like Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, you'll remember, um, I'll, uh, Daniel essentially says, I'll, I'll learn your language, I'll read your books, I'll go to your schools, and I'll take your job. I'll even change my name, but I'm not changing God's. That's where I draw the line. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? You got to bow. We're not going to bow. Then we'll throw you in the furnace. Our God's able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. So heat it up, brother. Go ahead. Hot as you want. We're not bending the knee to another God. Remember Mordecai and Haman? You got to bow. Remember what Mordecai says? Don't think so. Not bowing. Well, if you don't bow, we're going to kill all the Jews. That's too bad. But I'm not going to bow to another God. Why? Because Christ is our king. We're part of his kingdom. By the way, the only kingdom that's eternal. As we've seen in Daniel the kingdom that destroys all other kingdoms. You want to be on the winning team? <laughs> Bend the knee to Jesus. Not only this, though, we're not just part of the kingdom. We get to become priests to God. Isn't this good? In other words, a priest's job was to, to lead men and women to God. A priest, his job was to connect 
people to God. We get to connect people to God through the good news of Jesus Christ. God invites us into his mission. Says not only to get to be a part of the kingdom, you get to go out into this world and represent me and tell other people that they can be a part of the kingdom too. And all they gotta do is trust in Jesus Christ who came and died for them. And if they'll trust in Christ, their sins are forgiven. They'll be made worthy and they get to become a part of this kingdom and they become a priest for God and his purposes in this world. Isn't that amazing? I, I've told you many times before, but if I were God, I would have saved me and said, Chad, sit over in that corner, shut up, and don't do a word. You'll mess the whole deal up. But God says, I saved you. Now get in the game. You get to participate. Not on the sidelines. No spectators in God's kingdom work. Only priests. You get in the game. And then finally, he's to worship, be worshiped because in verse seven, he's coming back for us. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Coming with the clouds, where have we seen that before? Daniel chapter seven. It's why we studied Daniel first. Many of those themes are gonna be picked up right here in Revelation. Coming on the clouds and every eye will see him. When he returns that day, nobody's gonna have to point him out. Nobody's gonna say, hey, you gotta look over here. No, every eye will see him. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 27, the Olivet Discourse, he said, as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Every eye is gonna see him and the nations will mourn for him. Why? They'll mourn because at that moment, it's too late. And they are irrevocably lost. See, right now, in many ways, we're the people who mourn. We live in a world that is adverse to Christ, and we sacrifice, and we remain faithful regardless of what the world does to us. And we suffer, and we sacrifice, and sometimes we're persecuted. So we mourn a little bit today. But make no mistake about it. If you know Jesus Christ, your personal Lord and Savior, you're not going to mourn on that day. It'll be a day of rejoicing for us, but a day of mourning for the nations that have not received him. And then in verse eight, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He's the beginning and the end. This is the final letter. From Genesis to Revelation, he has spoken, meaning, spoken it, meaning it has been decided. God says this is true, this is unchanging. Because he is unchangeable. He is the almighty God. You know that almighty right there? It's El Shaddai, the God of the mountains who will not be moved. In other words, it doesn't really matter what you think. Jesus is king and he's worthy to be worshiped. So you can either bow now voluntarily and know his salvation and know his grace and know his forgiveness and know his peace, or you can bow forcibly then when Christ returns, not as the child to die, but as the son and the hawk bearing God's judgment. But make no mistake about it, every knee is going to bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king. He's your only hope. So I don't know what you're trusting in this morning. It is amazing to me when you get this picture of Christ that there are still people out there that think that somehow they're going to stand before God and impress him with their moral resume. That God, you got to let me in because, boy, I went to church quite often. You think that's going to impress the king of all the earth? 
No, quite honestly, all of us outside of Christ are unworthy to worship Christ. We cannot offer the worship that Christ demands in his holiness. And so then you ask yourself, how do we get made worthy? Jesus. Isn't this amazing? He's worthy of worship, and he makes us worthy to offer worship to him. What a Savior. What a hero. You know, um, at West Point Cemetery, there's only two civilians who are buried at West Point Cemetery. The Warner Sisters. These two little old ladies, you say, well, how in the world did these two ladies get buried in that West Point Cemetery? These two girls, they grew up across the Hudson River. Their uncle was a pastor, and they just felt compelled to go across the Hudson and teach Sunday school to West Point students. And they so endeared themselves to these West Point cadets that... uh, Even when the Hudson would freeze over, they would send delegates to escort them across the river because they so wanted to hear from these ladies. They loved them so much. Now, after the war began, those sisters, they wanted some way for those soldiers, many of whom they knew were going off to die, they wanted a way for those soldiers to remember the love of God no matter what circumstance they found themselves. To remember that God is... God of all the earth, but God also loves them. They wanted a way to remind them that Jesus, no matter what they faced, Jesus would never leave them. He would never forsake them. And so they wrote a little song. So do we have a, we got a song today? Oh, we got a song. You know what they wrote? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. And my favorite verse, Jesus loves me. He will stay close beside me all the way. And I know that when I die, he will take me home on high. You know one of the last cadets they taught? Dwight Eisenhower. I don't know what you're going through this morning, but you need to be reminded of something. All of us need to be reminded. Jesus is worthy of all of our worship. He's God. He's the faithful witness. He conquered the grave and he rules the world. But you know what you need to be reminded of mostly this morning? He loves you. He loves you. And if you'll... Trust in him and accept him and his salvation, then you can have the the confident assurance of knowing that he's on your side and no matter what you face, he will be with you. Even at the point of death, he's there. He conquered the grave and he'll get you through to the other side. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning that speaks so plainly to us about who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus. And God, I pray in light of this, I pray very specifically for anybody who may not know the salvation of Jesus this morning. I pray this morning in light of the glory of Christ, their sins will be revealed. 
Your word says we've all sinned and fallen short of your glory. We are broken. And in our brokenness, God, you have you had every right to just throw us out. Lord, you know that's often what we do with things that are broken. We just throw it out and start over. And if you had done that, it would have been perfectly just. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God, I pray this morning, if they don't know you, they'd see first their brokenness, but then they'd see the beauty of Jesus who died on a cross for their sins. That you knew everything they had done and you took all of their sins, past, present, and future, you placed them on your shoulders and you died and your blood covers their sin. And through faith in Jesus Christ, they're redeemed. That they have the opportunity today to make the greatest trade ever known to man. They give you their sin and you give them your righteousness. And they're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. Lord, I pray that they would know your salvation today. Draw them by your spirit to yourself. And Father, for those of us that do know you, I pray that we would know today you are worthy of worship. And that our worship would not be limited to an hour on Sunday. But worship would be the attitude of our life. That as Paul said in Romans, that in light of the mercies of God, we would offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable, which is our spiritual act of worship. We love you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name.